and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Jill Hasday, Distinguished McKnight University Professor and Centennial Professor of Law at the University of Minnesota Law School. We will discuss her new book, Intimate Lies and the Law, which is published by Oxford University Press. So welcome to the show, Jill. Thanks for having me. Oh, the pleasure is all mine. I was so glad when you wrote, especially because family law is definitely not my area, but I've always found it really interesting. Um, and I've done several interviews with other family law and sort of related area of law scholars, including my former, sadly, no longer current colleague, Albertina Antoniti, who's now at LSU. And I found this book really kind of fascinating powerful and full of these really just incredible stories, which seem to be such a kind of characteristic element of, of, of family law and family law scholarship. So I was wondering if you could start by talking about what you mean by intimate lies. So kind of what are you looking at as the subject matter for, for this book? Okay, so the book examines deception in dating, sex, marriage, and family life, and how the law responds to it, which is usually to deny remedies and protect deceivers. By deception, I just mean intentional acts or omissions that are designed to make someone else think something that the deceiver thinks is untrue. So probably the most obvious kind of deception would be a lie, but intentional um omissions uh, designed to mislead are probably more common and more effective forms of deception. Mm -hmm. Well, so in your book, you kind of categorize different ways, or maybe it's better to say even like different reasons that people engage in these forms of deception. Sort of how do you kind of taxonomize intimate lies, as it were? So I think courts have a tendency to say intimate deception was trivial to that relationship. It was like a frolic and detour. And one of the points I want to make in the book is that intimate deception is so common because people can capture such tremendous benefits from it. So the first chapter of the book is called Why Do People Deceive? And it goes through a variety of different categories of deception. For instance, one I call linchpin deception. That just means you deceive because you think, but for the deception, you wouldn't be able to have the relationship. So it could be a mirroring linchpin. Uh, I share your religion. I share your values. Or it could be a defensive linchpin hiding a black mark like a criminal record. Uh, another kind of deception I call gateway deception. There you're deceiving because intimacy is a route to benefits from the government. So a classic would be duping a citizen into marriage. So you have legal immigration rights. Um, there's also deception for mastery and control. You're deceiving someone to sort of control them. Um, there's the flip. Some people deceive out of subordination. They have so little power. In the book, I talk about uh, these stay-at-home wives. Their husbands refuse to provide them with cash. What do they do? They're deceiving left and right as a way to get hands on some money. Mm -hmm. I mean, it did seem to me like there's a way in which some of these forms of deception, I mean, like you provide a lot of different categories or sort of different ways and reasons that people engage in deception. But it did seem like there was like a sort of 
big picture distinction between people who are engaging in deception for the purpose of controlling the relationship and people who are engaging in deception for the purpose of getting something tangible from someone like a difference between like like almost like grifters and 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 well i don't know like emotionally abusive people or something so courts like to draw a distinction between con artists and intimate deceivers. I think in reality, it can be hard to tell the difference. In the book, I call con artists people who tell lies for a living and serial intimate deceivers people who live by telling lies. Um, it can be hard. I would say a basic distinction is con artists are interested in the money above all else. Serial intimate deceivers may be extracting money from you, but they're also really interested in the relationship. Um, courts are sometimes willing to give remedies when they're convinced the person is a con artist. And one thing they're always stressing, though, is this is an ordinary deception. This is criminal activity. It's something different. We wouldn't give remedies for ordinary deception uh, in intimacy. In reality, it's not always so clear who's a con artist versus an intimate uh, deceiver. But I think that is a distinction the law likes to draw. Mm -hmm. Well, so... How about that then? Like, I mean, how does the law treat people who are engaging in deceptive practices in intimate relationships differently from people who are engaging in deceptive practices in other contexts? And like, how does it identify what kinds of relationships count as sufficiently intimate to put into this category? Okay, so there's two questions there, and I'll just take them in turn. Overall, courts routinely deny deceived intimates access to the remedies they were they would have if they were deceived by a non-intimate. So they'll routinely say in cases involving marriage or not marriage or money or sex, you prove you have allegations of all the elements of a claim for fraud or misrepresentation or battery or intentional affliction of emotional distress, but you can't go forward because you were deceived by an intimate. They take that as a baseline presumption. Um, one reason this is particularly impactful is that courts tend to adopt a very sweeping definition of intimacy in the context of romantic and sexual relationships. So there's a thousand stories in the book, but one of the stories is this woman named Paula Bonham. She goes on an internet chat room. She connects with this man. Over the course of almost two years, they have endless interactions. They exchange phone calls, packages, and emails. Um, he extracts over $10,000 in gifts from her. He also puts her through the emotional ringer. He says he's considering suicide. He's dying of liver cancer. You know, it's very traumatic. Well, it turns out, and you know how the story's going to end because it's in my book, um, he never existed. He's a persona, you know, fake persona. She contends that this woman named Janice St. James invented to dupe her and manipulate her emotionally and financially. Uh, Paula Bonham sues in Illinois Supreme Court, and she seems to have all the elements of a fraudulent misrepresentation claim. The defendant uh, lied to her, wanted her to rely on the lies. She did reasonably rely, and she suffered injury as a result. And the Illinois Supreme Court says you can't bring a remedy because you were deceived by an intimate. So there's at least two things that are really interesting here. One is, again, that baseline assumption that intimate de deception shouldn't have access to the same remedies that the law ordinarily provides for deception. But two is the court is defining intimacy so sweepingly. These two women didn't meet until right before the deception was revealed. How could they, right? It all depended on them not seeing each other. But co the court was willing to say that's intimacy. And that's quite typical. If you've gone on a date once, if you've had sex once, even in this context where you haven't gone on a date or had sex, courts are willing to say it's intimate. 
In contrast, in the familial context, um, so parents, children, courts tend to define intimacy very narrowly. So they'll include parents and children as intimates. But if you deceive your siblings or your cousins or your uncles or your aunts, they just treat you as unrelated. Intimacy is narrow in the family context and broad in the romantic and sexual context. So, so, so how did we get here, right? Because, I mean, as you point out in the book, there is a long history of courts trying to figure out how to mediate and regulate these kinds of disputes and these kinds of these kinds of deceptions. It's nothing new, right? It's been happening since time immemorial. And at least in theory, it seems like they did it very differently in the past. Like, how did the law used to conceptualize these kinds of deceptions? Maybe in theory and in practice, if they're not necessarily the same thing. And sort of how did it get to where it is today? Okay, so you're right. Intimate deception is a persistent part of life, so it's a perennial for the law. This is something the law always has to respond to. One thing, uh, one of the chapters in my book is a legal history chapter, and I talk about how remedies for intimate deception actually contracted over the course of the 20th century or became much less valuable, which is one reason I think that scholars really haven't focused here. We, as a profession, tend to look at areas where their success and where the courts are more um, interested in pursuing it. So I think three uh, main, I have three main explanations for why the remedies contracted. The first is starting in 1935, states passed what were known as anti-harpam laws, which prohibited suits for seduction and breach of promise to marry. Some women had been using these causes of action basically to sue men who deceived them. You, the standard would be like, you pretended you want to get married, so I would have sex with you, but in fact, you were already married. That's like a very classic case. Um, states passed this wave of anti-heartbound laws for a lot of very sexist reasons, like if you're interested. And since then, courts have interpreted these laws very broadly. So if you were once engaged to someone and ultimately didn't get married, if you try to sue them for any kind of deception, it can be unrelated to the broken engagement. Courts will say, no, that's a breach of promise. Sometimes courts will stop two people who actually married from suing each other about deception. They'll say that's a breach of promise to marry suit, which doesn't even make sense because there was no promise that was breached. They married. Um, so the first factor I think that explains the contraction is these anti-heartbound laws and then courts interpret them just very, very broadly. Second, some claims that courts were willing to entertain in the early 20th century just become normatively unacceptable. Like the judiciary isn't interested anymore in hearing claims that you tricked me into marrying you by hiding that you're not really white under one drop rule. And for a variety of policy and also constitutional reasons, courts just aren't interested. But the most important factor that explains the contraction remedies is the advent of no-fault divorce. So it used to be but the reason most people went to court contending that they had been deceived is because they were seeking an annulment based on deception. Now, there's still plenty of deception, but you don't have to go to court to get out of a um, divorce. So just, you, you just don't see the courts kind of litigating this as, as commonly because there's no litigation over annulments or fault-based divorce or hardly, hardly any. In fact, some courts have said now that we have no-fault divorce, uh, you can't sue someone for deceiving you in marriage. I find that argument unconvincing, as you can imagine. I can get into that here. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. So there's two different things it sounds like we should dig a little bit deeper into. Maybe we could start with the first. I mean, like, tell me more about these heart balm 
supports and the sort of wave of legislation you talk about sort of invalidating them. Why did, you know, what were they intended to accomplish? Why did that legislation get passed? And when courts refer to it today, are they understanding it in the context of why it was initially passed or or not? So the standard story legislators told in the 1930s and 40s is that gold-digging women, the term gold-digger actually comes from a breach of promise, uh, a play about a breach of promise suit. Gold-digging women were inventing fraudulent men, inventing fraudulent claims to target wealthy men. The problem with this argument is they had no evidence that they were fraudulent claims. Their evidence was circular. A true woman wouldn't sue. You know, she would be too modest. So the way they know these women are conniving fraudsters is the very fact they've sued. The legislators never talk about, well, what about the women who aren't making it up, who were actually deceived into having sex, losing their virginity in an era where that really diminishes their possibilities on the marriage market by someone who, you know, pretended he was going to marry them when he's already married or is otherwise totally uninterested. So the argument for getting rid of these heartbound suits was women are fraudsters. We know that because they're making a claim against a man. Um, And these arguments, they definitely do not stand up to the light of day, but um, these statutes are not dusty relics. Courts continue to rely on them. Moreover, they rely on them in any context where there's former fiancés. It doesn't have to be a suit uh, claiming you did me wrong by not marrying me. It can be about anything else. So, for instance, I talk in the book, these two people meet. The woman is an HR person, not very high up at Amtrak. The man is the inspector general at Amtrak, so a fancier job. They start dating. Eventually, they, get, they get engaged. He tells her, now that we're engaged, we can't both work here. The personnel policy at Amtrak prohibits it. She quits. She's never able to get as good a job. Eventually, they break up, and she finds out that he was lying to her about the personnel policy. He wanted to get her out of the company. She sues for misrepresentation. Pennsylvania, uh, federal district court in Pennsylvania says, you can't sue. There's a statutory prohibition in Pennsylvania on breach of promise to marry suits. Well, I don't think she can sue for you failed to marry me. That's what the statute prohibits. But under my approach, the mere fact that they were once engaged shouldn't be a categorical bar. Even if he had married her, she still would have suffered enormous injury in being tricked out of losing her job. So the argument I make in the book is if an ordinary employee could sue the inspector general for lying about the personnel policy to get rid of him. She should be able to bring the same claim. Yeah. I mean, this seems kind of bonkers, right? The idea that simply because you happen to be involved in an intimate relationship with someone, you can't bring a claim you would otherwise be able to bring. I mean, it just seems kind of irrelevant. Well, I hope I'm gratified, of course, to hear you say that. I hope other people have this reaction. One thing I think is interesting is there actually are all these cases adjudicating deception and intimacy, but people haven't considered them together. I say in the book, it's a legal field hidden in plain sight. And my hope is that when people actually see the themes that are systematically running this case, it'll strike them as wrong headed um, in a way that now we just don't focus on it. Mm. Well, so part of me is wondering like, why are courts applying this kind of incredibly restrictive set of understandings on why and when people can bring claims for deception under these circumstances? And and even you, you, you point to the fact that it's actually really 
really much more difficult than people realize to identify deception as it's happening. And it seems like we seem to not be very good at sort of recognizing and accepting the reality that we don't know when people are lying to us. I mean, I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit and like maybe give some of the examples that you talk about in your book where, you know, people are deceived and really they had no way to know otherwise. Okay. So I think courts and and commentators, ordinary people like to say, if only you had been shrewder and investigated sooner or more thoroughly, you would have discovered it. It's your fault. And I understand why people want to say this. First, in hindsight, things look clearer. Now that we know he's a scumbag, it seems so so obvious the way you should have figured that out earlier. Also, I think psychologically, it's very distressing to think that an intimate, a person who's very close to you could be duping you about something crucially important. It's much more comforting to believe that only the particularly foolish or gullible could fall for it because, of course, we're all super smart and savvy, and that means we're safe. Um, But all the evidence suggests that detecting deception is very difficult, perhaps especially from an intimate. And in one of the chapters of my book, I go through, there's a psychological literature on deception, which is very interesting. Um, But we're much worse at spotting deceit than we might like to think. And from an intimate, someone we trust who's telling us exactly what we want to hear can be harder. There's also social norms that urge us to trust our intimates and not investigate them. Social norms which serve a lot of good purposes. And even if we want to investigate, it's hard to do so without jeopardizing the relationship because the person finds out about it. You know, there are practical obstacles. You follow someone around, you search their garbage, they may spot you. You go through someone's tax returns or credit reports. That's against the law and for good reason. You could end up in jail yourself. One irony is that courts like to blame people for being deceived when the law itself, for good reasons, make investigating more difficult. Mm-hmm. Well, that's one thing that really kind of struck me is totally bizarre about the circumstance that we put people in. I mean, as you observe, it's like we we allow people to bring a claim for deceit when they're engaging in a contractual relationship like a business contractual relationship with a third party if that person is being, you know, untruthful with them in context where it seems like in an intimate context, we say you're not allowed to bring this kind of claim. And yet at the same time, we both legally and certainly socially sanction levels of investigation on you know, with respect to sort of business relationships and third parties that we would look at as totally inappropriate in an intimate context. So it's like, don't ask, but if you get screwed too bad for you, I mean, that just doesn't make any sense. Should have asked, right. I mean, and I think it's perfectly reasonable for someone at the end of reading my book to decide they're going to be more of an investigator and are not going to abide by social norms against investigation. I think that's a perfectly reasonable view. But I also think that we shouldn't blame people for being deceived. It's been interesting. I've done a lot of different you know, interviews about this book. And one thing a lot of people want to know is, what are the tips to prevent me from being deceived, right? And I, and I have some tips. I can give you some tips. But in general, <laughs> I, think, I think there's a danger that that leads us to think if only we had the tips and we were savvier, we wouldn't have been deceived. Anyone can be fooled. Okay, I'll give you some tips, though. 
please. Yes. I mean, I think we should definitely offer people as many practical elements in the podcast as possible. Okay, so in the book, I read a lot of guides written by and for private detectives and skip tracers. And so I have, I know a lot more about how to use the internet and public records. And you can, if you look at chapter two of the book, there's a lot of very practical things about what, what's available in public records. Um, just quick tips. If someone tells you early on that they are a CIA agent, the odds are very strong they are not. Deceivers like coming up with jobs that are both glamorous and give them an excuse for a lot of time away. If you're a real CIA agent, you're not telling your new date <laughs> that you're a spy. Similarly, there's probably more men this year claiming to be Navy SEALs than have ever served in the actual Navy SEALs in the history of the operation. Um, you know, just be a little skeptical, right? If, you're, if your mm -hmm. um, spidey sense makes you think things aren't adding up, act on that. Uh, uh huh. So Joel, so Joel, I got to ask yeah. you: if some if somebody says they're a law professor, should you believe them? Well, in it, in in reality, I believe them all the time, right? You present yourself as University of Kentucky law professor. I have accepted that. I have not done due diligence. In retrospect, right? It's easy to say, "Oh, what? Of course, you should have investigated." You should have demanded to call them back on their phone. On their, I mean, there's all sorts of things. Like if it was a fraud, there's all sorts of things in retrospect that would have revealed it. Why didn't you look them mm. up on the internet? Why didn't you call them back on your office phone? Right? It's easy for that to say that in retrospect, and that's just not how most people operate. If you want yeah. to operate like that, that's fine. Although I also think that there's a danger. So one of the I read a lot of memoirs in addition to cases. You know, I just want to get the lived experience. The books about both the social phenomenon of intimate deception and also the law's reaction. And one of the memoirs is a man, his wife was having a secret affair for years. He finally finds out. And he says, like many people in that situation, what hurt most was the deception. Less the adultery than the deception, you know, all these lies. And he says, on the one hand, right now I have a more realistic sense of how easy it is to be deceived. On the other, how am I going to have another relationship if I can't trust again? You know, I don't want the message of this book to be trust no one, form no intimate bonds. <laughs> that would be horrible. It would be horrible if someone says you, they love you and your first reaction is, how can I verify this through the public records? Mm -hmm. Well, so I, 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 I guess one thing, kind of big picture question I really had while reading and thinking about your book was like, what kind of deception counts and what kind of deception doesn't? I mean, is there ever like an autonomy interest in people being able to like represent themselves in the way they wish they were, as opposed to maybe the way people would objectively describe them? And like, how do we distinguish between the kinds of deception we think are unacceptable, inappropriate, and that people should be able to object to and even maybe bring a lawsuit about and the kinds of self mythology that maybe we think people have a right to engage in. Okay. So there's a lot there. So first thing I'll say is I think self-deception is probably the most common and the most intimate kind of deception of all. And my book is not about self-deception. So I'm only covering situations where the deceiver thinks one thing and is saying another, right? So there's plenty of self-deception. And if you're spreading the fantasy you've created for yourself, that's not, in my view, you know, that's not deception as I'm covering it. Um, the other thing I want to say is 
the, one of the things I want to happen is I think court should start with a rebuttable presumption that a deceived intimate will have access to the same causes of action that would be available if he was equivalently deceived outside of intimacy. So you need to have a claim. It's not just you hurt my feelings. You need to have a claim. In general, the law is much more hostile to emotional injuries compared to financial or physical. I don't um, think that that imbalance necessarily makes sense, but that's just the reality of tort law. So it has to be a situation where you can establish a claim, like battery. It was uh, unconsensual touching, and it doesn't count as consent in general about if you were deceived. It has, you have to have a claim. Um, the other thing I'll say is there's some kinds of deception uh, I'm not interested in the book. So for instance, if someone deceives and the person who was deceived agrees it was in her own interest, there's no lawsuit possible and there's no injury, right? So for instance, as I say in my book, if you want to tell me I really enjoyed reading your book and that's a lie, that's fine. It makes me feel better. It doesn't hurt anyone. I'm fine. I'm fine with that. But deceivers have a tendency. Yeah, I know. As soon as I sign yeah, the yeah, book, chill, I'm like, chill. Chill. I, I really enjoyed reading your book. <laughs> I say it earlier how I want people to react. But um, uh, I think deceivers have a tendency to rationalize. Actually, I, there's quite a bit of evidence. I shouldn't just say anything. And say, it was, I didn't tell her because it would just upset her. And yeah, your wife would be upset to know that you're funneling money to the Caymans. But I think that, that you know, the question is whether if she, once she finds out, she would say, was I better off not knowing or would I rather mm. have known and mm. stopped it at the time? Right. So I don't think the mere fact that the deceiver thinks it's in the other person's interest isn't enough. I call that paternalistic deception. I'm doing it to spare them in some ways. Um, the kind of deception I'm not interested in is where both people, you know, even after it comes out, they both mm. agree that was fine. So you want to pretend you find your spouse's story about her day interesting. You know, I mean, there's mm. no harm there. I think sometimes people have a tendency to start thinking of these very kind of extreme and I mean, very minor and kind of cute examples. I'm interested in like the white hot center, you know, we don't have to get to, but you said you liked my pancake recipe. Yeah. I mean, I guess one of the things that struck me was like, you know, you, you gave these examples of like heart balm torts and related objections in the past that we now see as being sort of totally unacceptable because of the way that our mores have changed. So like, you know, suits saying, you know, you lied about what, what race you were and, you know, you're not really white. So my marriage should be annulled. And obviously that seems like the kind of claim that we shouldn't recognize because that's just wrong and evil and inappropriate. But I wonder about like a modern analog, like, for example, what if someone were to say, you know, like, for example, someone's a transgender woman and they didn't disclose that fact to someone right or someone said that they were jewish and in order you know and they believed that they were jewish but it wasn't actually true that they were jewish i mean are those the kind i mean should someone have a claim in those circumstances how should we think about that oh well if they if they say they're Jewish and they think they're Jewish, that's not a deception claim. You know, you could be mistaken. People can be objectively mistaken. That can cause harm, but that, that would be a different book. This is, you know, it's not a deception claim. Um, the transgender example, I think, is really interesting because obviously it's, it is a site of tremendous discrimination. 
The only thing I would say on the other side is the other person's claim is, well, I have a right to consent. To I mean, imagine like the person's concealing it because they know the other person wouldn't consent consent to a sexual relationship with them. You know, if the other person has a has sort of a sexual autonomy and bodily um, integrity interest of their own. I'm not um, under my book. I'm actually not saying how I think every particular case would come out because of course there's a million facts i would just say like right now if someone comes to court and says you tricked me into having sex by lying about something that you knew was crucial courts won't let you bring a battery claim even though it seems like it's very standard battery harmful offensive of touching that was not consented to under standard battery doctrine uh, consent obtained through deception doesn't necessarily count as real consent so the cases that have come forward, mainly women, you know, you lied about being unmarried. You said you, you know, you said you were unmarried, looking for a serious relationship. Turns out you're married. You're living with your wife. You have no intent to get divorced. They bring about it. Courts just will not hear that. And what I think is, there shouldn't be a categorical bar because it's about deception between intimates. You should be able to use ordinary battery um, theory and go forward. I think for the more because deception in sexual relationships is so common, I anticipate that there will be skepticism from juries and judges. And I'm not saying every plaintiff would or even should succeed, but I don't think they should be categorically barred because they're suing over deception in the context of an intimate relationship. Yeah, I mean, I, and I have to say, I mean, I find that really a compelling argument. And after reading your book, I don't understand why it isn't. Like, why isn't that obvious? to courts that people, people haven't had a chance to do a book. Oh, okay, so I'll, tell you, I know, I'll tell you some counter arguments. I'll tell you the counter arguments and then I'll give you my responses. So one counter argument I, I anticipate, uh, this is based on the existing literature, but because I'm kind of the first book, I have to kind of come up with, you know, the counter arguments. So one counter argument is uh, we have to stay out of intimate, the courts have to stay out of intimate relationships. And I have a few responses. So one the courts are not swooping in. This is civil litigation. Plaintiffs are coming to court asking for help. Two, the appeal of leaving the status quo intact turns on what that status quo looks like. Here, not providing remedies means leaving injuries unredressed the law would otherwise be willing to remediate. But most importantly, I think non-intervention is impossible. Either way, whether you rule for plaintiffs or defendants, uh, the court is setting the ground rules for intimacy. Right now, it's just doing so in a way that protects deceivers. Um, but anyway, so non-intervention arguments is that sometimes courts just take it as common sense. They're not going to provide remedies, but sometimes they say non-intervention. Here's some other arguments. Um, sometimes people might say, well, providing more remedies for intimate deception would uh, discourage reconciliation. So I agree that it is generally a relationship ender to sue someone. And I don't have a problem with someone who decides they're not going to sue because they're interested in maintaining the relationship. I think that's fine. At the same time, if someone is willing to sue, I don't think the law should stop them. What I say in the book is that if a relationship is nasty and brutish, the law shouldn't care if it's short. Um, another potential objection is, well, this will discourage uh, people to it will encourage people to feel aggrieved when otherwise they would accept their lot. I've read hundreds, maybe thousands of memoirs, deceived intimates already feel aggrieved. Uh, moreover, to the extent this encourages some people to think they deserve better than to be duped, I see that as an advance. Mm. Oh, one more, one more counter argument I'll do. The floodgates will open and courts will be overwhelmed. 
So floodgates arguments always have two parts. First, they have an empirical prediction about how many new cases. I actually don't think there's going to be a tsunami of new cases because litigation is expensive. You have to get a lawyer. You have to be suing someone who has the money to pay an award. These are all limitations on torts. Um, and it's embarrassing to admit you're duped. Also, you have to have a cause of action, right? You have to be able to fit it into an existing cause of action. But second and more fundamentally, I reject the normative premise. In a floodgates argument, it's always, there's going to be so many cases and they're not worth judiciary's time. Intimate deception can inflict enormous injury. And I think it's worth the judiciary's time as much as the ordinary, you know, civil and, uh, criminal cases that fill the court stock. Mm -hmm. Well, so I wanted to redirect for a second and talk a little bit about some of your, the comments you make in the book about deceptions in families, as opposed to between adults involved in in relationships. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and so among other things, like as, you know, I, I personally was adopted as an infant, Right. And so parts of your book really like kind of resonated with me because you were telling stories that intersected with my own personal experiences. And I was really interested in the lack of congruence between how courts treat lies told to children as opposed to lies told by children. And I wonder if you could like just spend a second talking about that difference and like, why is that happening? So after most of the book is, not most, but a few chapters is spent on romantic and sexual relationships. And then I turn to like the least thought of area of already kind of under-examined field, which is intimate deception outside of romance, sex, marriage. So parent-child, siblings, aunts, uncles, that kind of thing. You still see the theme of courts wanting to shield deception, but only in contexts where parents deceive their children. In fact, courts act like parents have a prerogative to deceive. Now, you might think that's not surprising. Parents have all sorts of control over their children. But courts act like parents have a prerogative to deceive their adult children. So you can start a deception when the kid's already an adult. And courts will just take it as like, they're just not willing to give a remedy. Even though, in general, parental prerogatives over children end at the age of majority. In contrast, if you are a child who deceives your parents you are in trouble. <laughs> Courts are extremely hostile to you. And they just, and it doesn't have to be the parents who are elderly or infirm or vulnerable. You're just, you're a kid who has duped your parents and taken advantage of them financially or whatever. Courts are very, very hostile. Um, one explanation just might be like courts, they are, they see themselves more easily in the parental role rather than the child role by the time someone gets on the uh, judiciary, but it is very striking. Um, the other thing, as I mentioned before, is in the familial context. If you're outside a parent or child, courts just assume they don't treat you like an intimate anymore. And they take that as so obvious, they don't even mention that. So in my first book, uh, Family Law Reimagined, I talked about how family law spends so little time on siblings and how to protect sibling relationships. And you really see echoes of that here. Courts assume that family law is really about marriage and parenthood. And if it's two siblings who deceive each other, they just take it as common sense that that's like strangers without even getting into it. You know, oh, is this really interesting? No, it's just, it's just strangers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, so Jill, in, in closing, I have to say, when I first started reading your book, 
I was really struck by the epigraph, which was both one of the funniest and in a weird way, kind of the most moving things I've read in a while. I just wonder if you had anything to say about that. So the epigraph is to my loved ones. You didn't inspire me to write the book. Um, So they didn't. That's true. Uh, I've had a very smooth personal life. I think it would, and I'm sure that shaped the book when I started writing this book, I was shocked by so many things. You know, this person has a secret second family. How do they manage the logistics of it? Now, sadly or not, you know, I nothing surprises me anymore. I'm not saying everyone has a secret second family, but it's just much more common than you think. Um, also, writing this book, you know, so many people have told me their stories, you know, just as I'm going around talking to people. So that's been interesting. But this book comes out of my work as a family law professor, Occasionally, I would come across this case where these cases where these deceitful intimates inflicted enormous injury and the courts were just categorically unwilling to provide redress. And I just thought that was so interesting. And I always kept it in mind as something I wanted to go back to. Mm, mm. Well, Jill, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been really a pleasure talking to you. I really, I did really and truly enjoy reading your book very much. <laughs> the stories in there are amazing, harrowing. And I mean, I can't recommend it more highly. And it was really fun to talk to you about it. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, If people are interested in finding out more about the book, I have a website, jillhasday.com. That's J-I-L-L-H-A-S as in Sam, D as in David, A-Y.com. Um, if you like a daily dose of stories about deceptive bigamy and the like, I'm on Twitter, Jill Hasday. Um, and it's mainly, you know, intimate lies in the news. Okay, awesome. And all of that information will, of course, be in the liner notes for the show. Thanks so much, Jill. Thank you. Night was as still as the desert 
the moon hanging high overhead. Bill listened to the wild through the window. He could hear every word that they said. Your hands are so pretty and lovely, and your form is so rare and divine. Come go back with me to Philadelphia, we'll leave this vile cowboy behind. Now tonight's back in old Pennsylvania, amongst her beautiful pines. There's one less Philadelphia lawyer in old Philadelphia tonight.